Amen. And thank you for that. Uh, and Ben, thank you for that message. You know, it is easy to get sidetracked by all the the things going on, the, the, the activities, the shopping, the wrapping of presents, the you know, maybe not so much the get-togethers this year, but it is so easy to, to lose the meaning of Christmas in all the, the tinsel and, and everything that comes with it. And so I hope that just as much as you've spent time preparing your homes for Christmas, I pray you've been spending time preparing your hearts as well. And that's why we focus in Advent uh, on these four weeks of preparation. We focus on, on hope and peace and joy. And then as we are looking at today and this week, Love. Uh, it's, it's about so much more than the decorations on the tree. It's that meaning behind those things. I love that idea of I spying Jesus in all of the, the, the things about Christmas. You know, as often as these gifts of hope and peace and joy are, they really all are the warm-up act to what we're focusing on this week, and that's love. And love is really the, the ultimate prime reason behind Christmas. John 3:16 and 17 reminds us that it is because of God's love that Jesus was even born. We wouldn't have Christmas if it weren't for the fact that God loved us so much. In fact, let's just read these two verses together. We know them so well. Let's read these together. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that to so save the world through Him. Amen. That is so true. You know, there is a principle, and I've talked about this before. We've, we've gone over this before, but sometimes it bears repeating. There is a principle in biblical interpretation where you make note of when a word is first mentioned. Whether that's first mentioned in the Bible, first mentioned in the New Testament, or first mentioned in a book of the Bible. Uh, you know, for us today, we don't really think about the significance of that. But in the ancient world, the first time a word or an idea appears in writing uh, often bore significance. And it was something that would even be reserved and held for a particular moment to be mentioned first. And, and if love is the point of the Advent and Christmas seasons, if love is the reason that Jesus came, then you would think there would be uh, an important first mention of love in one of those two Christmas narratives, whether it's in Matthew or in Luke. But you don't. If you read the Christmas story in Matthew, you read the Christmas story in Luke, the word love doesn't appear one time. Now, that seems so strange to us because love is such an important word, and it's true. But I think for us in our culture, it's also a bit of an overused word. It's a word that's lost a little bit of its punch. We've watered it down a lot because we love everyone from our parents to our pets to the presents under the tree, don't we? I mean, we just, to pizza. You know, we, we love everything. And, and sadly, in our world today, love, like everything else seems to be, love has become politicized. And people love to talk about love is love. And if you dare stand up for the biblical definition of marriage and how God created uh, men and women for one another, you're called a bigot. And you're told, stop being so judgmental and hateful. Jesus only ever loved people. He never judged anyone. And that's kind of thrown in our faces. So I think, to put it mildly, the word love has lost its power for us in 21st century America. It's lost its meaning for us. You know, I think people are surprised because, you know, people who don't really follow Jesus, but, but they, they want to use Jesus for their own advantages... 
Uh, they love to talk about Jesus was all about love, and he talked about love, and he preached love, and all of this. And it's true. Jesus does love, and he does talk about love, and he does preach love. Those things are true. But I think you'd be surprised to find out how little the word love is actually found in the Bible. In fact, the New American Standard, which is the most literal uh, word-for-word translation of the Bible there is, only uses the word love 530 times in all the Bible. 66 books. And that's not as much as you would think, especially when you learn that words like death, kill, and judgment are found more times than that in the Bible. So if the Bible writers use the word love so judiciously, then when they do use it, maybe we ought to pay attention to it. Maybe that makes each of those 530 uses that much more significant for us. Now, you might guess the Bible writer who used the word love more than anybody else. He was known as the Beloved. His name is John. And in all of John's writings, he uses the word love almost a fifth of all the usage in the whole Bible. 117 times he uses the word love. And his most famous use of the word is in the passage we just read. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But I want us to look at another John 3.16, 1 John 3.16, because that is where he really helps us understand what love is. It says, this is how we know what love is. I mean, he tells us right here. I'm about to give you the definition. I'm about to explain to you what love is. Here it is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's what love is. It doesn't stop there. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. So if our culture today is confused about what love is, John says you can find clarity by just looking to Jesus. We can know what love is because Jesus laid down his life for us. Now, when you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and you read the creation account, every day after God creates light, he creates land, he creates plants and animals, after every day he looks at it and he says it's what? Good. But it's not until after he makes humans in his own image on that sixth day that he says it is very good. It's humanity that brings that pleasure and that joy to God's heart. And then when you look at the manger and the cross and the empty tomb, they only magnify this value that God places on people. He would rather be born in human flesh. He would rather suffer and die a cruel, unjust, humiliating death on the cross than to spend eternity without you and me. So, God obviously loves people. He does love the world so much. But where do we find love in the Christmas story? Where do we find it? We won't find the word in the text, but we certainly see it demonstrated in the events, don't we? Again, John talks about this in 1 John 4, 9 and 10. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. I love how John just is so plain. He tells you what he's about to tell you, right? So you want to know what love is? Jesus laid down his life for us. You want to know how God has showed his love among us? He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Tells us again. Here it is. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us 
and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So why then is the word love so absent from the gospel narratives? Why isn't it to be found anywhere in the story of God's entrance into the world? It's interesting to me, that choice. So where do we see the word love for the first time? Well, the very first place we find it in the whole Bible is in Genesis 22.2. God is speaking to Abraham and he says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. The first time it's used in the Bible. And go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now, the Hebrew word that's used here is the equivalent of the Greek word in, of uh, phileo or agape. So phileo and agape can be used interchangeably for this word here. And so certainly Abraham's love for his son was a selfless love. It was an agape love, but it was also a phileo love. It was an affectionate love for his son. And so with that in mind, I want us to now look at the first time we see love in each of the four Gospels. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's easy. We see the word love for the first time really in the same way in all three of them. Okay, I'm just going to read Matthew 3, 17. A voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And basically the same thing occurs in Mark and in Luke. So here you have Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist. He comes up out of the water. The Holy Spirit descends as a dove. And this voice from heaven, God the Father, saying of his beloved son, This is my son, whom I love. And then, of course, the first occurrence of love in John's gospel would be what? Any guesses? John 3.16. For God so loved the world. So the first time we see love in the Bible, it's God telling Abraham to go up on a mountain and sacrifice his only son, the son whom he loves. And the first time we see love in each of the gospels, God is presenting to the world his one and only Son, the Son whom He loves. And as John 3.16 tells us, the Son that He has sent into this world, for this world, to die for our sins. Jesus is the sacrifice offered in our place, just as that ram caught in a thicket was offered for Isaac's place. The, the, The point that the gospel writers and the Holy Spirit through them is trying to make here is crystal clear for us. This is no coincidence. God is telling us something very important and profound about Jesus and His law of love. Now let's go back to the Christmas story, especially to this message the angels give to the shepherds. How did the shepherds hear love in this message? How did they see love when they arrived at that stable that night? How could they even know when they got to Bethlehem that they had found the right child, this amazing child of promise? How would they know? What was the sign the angels gave them? Look with me in Luke chapter 2. Look at verse 12. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. The sign was that this baby would be swaddled in strips of cloth, and in a manger, in a feeding trough, in a stable. Now, naturally, the shepherds were curious about this. You might even say they were amazed by this. They were compelled to go and see for themselves. Look what they say in verse 15. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Now, it's interesting the angels didn't tell them to do that. 
In fact, the angels didn't command the shepherds to do anything with this news. But this news was so amazing to them, they were compelled. They had to go and see for themselves this child. So what was it in this message that got their attention? That made them want to hurry off and see this baby? What is the significance of this strange sign? How is it that a baby wrapped in strips of cloth lying in a manger, how is that the sign of the mighty Savior, the long-awaited Messiah? I've mentioned this before. We've talked about this before, that these shepherds, we have to remember, working in Bethlehem, which is just a couple of miles from Jerusalem. In fact, from Bethlehem, they could still see the smoke rising from the temple every day. So these sheep being raised on this west side of Bethlehem were sheep being raised for the slaughter in the temple. They were sacrificial lambs. That's why these sheep were born. They were born to die. So shepherding flocks of sacrificial sheep was a major industry here in Bethlehem because the Torah called for two lambs to be sacrificed every day in the temple, morning and evening. And you add to that, that's 730 lambs a year. You add to that the thousands of lambs required for families making their way to Jerusalem for Passover and for other celebrations that had to make sacrifices as well. And sacrificial lambs were special lambs. Again, they were born to die. And they had to be perfect, without spot or blemish. So you can imagine you've got a, a fold of, of, of sheep and you've got a, a ewe that's given birth to a lamb and you've got all these sheep kind of milling about. And as we've talked about before in our 23rd Psalm series, sheep are not the smartest of animals, are they? And they often get themselves into trouble, which is why we're like sheep. And so the shepherd would take that newborn lamb when its legs were still weak and spindly and he would tuck those legs up under it and would wrap it in strips of cloth and get it up off the ground, away from the other sheep, often in a manger. So really for the shepherds, when they get to that stable and they see Jesus in that manger, in one way, this is a common sight for them. But what's not common, what even I would say is scandalous, is that it wasn't a newborn lamb in this manger. It was a newborn baby boy. These shepherds recognized that shocking symbolism immediately. This baby himself was a sacrificial lamb. This baby was born to die. And this baby was perfect. Sinless. Without spot or blemish. Author Leonard Sweet writes about this. He says, The most important sacrificial lamb who had ever been born, the lamb who had come to close down the slaughterhouse of sacrifices, was the perfect lamb of God. Whereas 1 John 3, 1 says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. Why has He lavished this love on us? So that we could be called children of God. That's why Jesus came. That's where we see love in that manger. Jesus said this about Himself in John 10. He says, I have come that they might have life to the full. I am the good shepherd. But He's the good shepherd who lays down His life for the sheep. Jesus is both the good shepherd and the sacrificial lamb. And He came to willingly die in our place that we might have eternal and abundant life as sons and daughters of God. Now that is love. Amen? You want to know what love is. If you want to know, listen, if you want to know whether God loves you or not, look to Jesus. Look to that baby in a manger. Look to the Christ on the cross. Look to that empty tomb. That is God's love. 
for you. But it begs the question, why? Why? Why is this necessary? Why is it necessary for God's love that Jesus be born only to die on the cross? What sense does that make? I'll tell you why. Because of our sin. Because we have fallen short of God's glory. Because, as we heard in our Advent reading, each and every one of us are lawbreakers. We've all broken the law of God. Look, even before God handed down the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, He created this world and He created us as people with a natural law. There's a law of God that's woven into the very fabric of creation that's in keeping with His immutable character and His divine nature. We see that expressed in Genesis 2 and 3 when God creates Adam and Eve. And He gives them one commandment. Listen, we couldn't even keep one commandment, much less 10 or 613. We couldn't keep one. Adam and Eve, one command, don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll die. And what do they do? They go and they eat it. You can't even keep one rule. Paul says we are enemies of God in our minds because of our selfishness, our greed, our lying, our lusting, the wicked intents of our hearts. Paul writes in Colossians 2, 13 through 15, we just looked at this a few days ago in my uh, Facebook devotional series, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. By the cross. Notice what Paul says in this passage about our condition. He says we're dead in sin. We're uncircumcised in our flesh. And he doesn't mean like physically uncircumcised in your flesh. He's talking about in our sinful human nature. What the Old Testament prophets would say, we have uncircumcised hearts. Meaning our hearts are unclean and guilty and non-conforming to the way of our Creator. Paul says we have criminal charges against us. We are legally indebted because of our sin. And that indebtedness, that charge, stands against us and condemns us. God doesn't condemn us. We condemn ourselves because of our sinful, hard hearts. So how does God rectify this? If this is our condition, how does God take we who are dead and make us alive? How does He circumcise our hearts? How can we ever repay this sin debt we owe to an infinitely holy God? Jesus paid the debt for us. He did what we could never do. He forgave our debt. He cleared us of all charges by taking the very law that condemned us, the law that stood against us, and nailing it to the cross. In Galatians 3 and 4, Paul goes on to call us slaves and prisoners of this law. He even says, and we heard this in our New Testament reading, that Jesus was born under the law to save, to redeem those of us under the law so He could set us free by grace. Jesus takes slaves and sets them free, turning them into sons and daughters of the King of glory. So when you read passages like this from Paul, it makes the law sound out to be the bad guy. 
And it might make you wonder, well, why did God give us the law in the first place? If it's just going to be a written code that's going to condemn us and stand against us, if we're slaves to this law, why did God give us the law in the first place? Well, Paul explains that too in Galatians 3, 24 and 25. He says the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. That we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come. And we are no longer under the supervision of the law. So Paul tells us that the law has served its purpose. Its purpose was to point out our sins. To point out our need for a Savior and to lead us to faith in Christ so that He might justify us by grace through faith. You see, the law can only condemn. can't save. All it can do is condemn us. Jesus alone can forgive and save and set us free. Jesus has fulfilled the law. He has come as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. The law's condemning power has been nailed to the cross and put to death. It's been canceled. And we live in this cancel culture. People talk about things and people being canceled. Jesus canceled the law. It no longer has power over us. We're under a different law now. The law of love. We've been saved, redeemed, and set free from the law of sin. The law of judgment. The law of endless sacrifices that could never atone for all the sins of which we're guilty. We've been set free from that. And now we operate under the law of love. Look what Paul writes in Romans 13, 8-10. He says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. How do we fulfill the law? We love others. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus said, isn't it? When the, when the teacher of the law came to him and said, uh, said, Rabbi, which is the greatest commandment? Jesus said, well, there's two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He said, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. So what Paul is echoing here. When the, when the law tells us don't steal, don't kill, don't lie, don't commit adultery, really what God is giving us are specific ways in which we love people as ourselves. And Paul says, look, if you, don't, if you want to abide by those commandments, just focus on loving others. He says, love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So you see, Jesus' coming, His death and His resurrection, they not only set us free by the law of love, Jesus came to set us free to fulfill the law of love. Let's go back to 1 John 3.16. That's what John is saying. He says, how do we know what love is? Well, first, Jesus Christ laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So Jesus not only makes it possible for us to know love, He makes it possible for us to show love. By His love, we can fulfill His law by sharing that love with others. I mean, mean, love received is a powerful thing. Don't get me wrong. I, I love being loved, don't you? And when somebody loves you, maybe they send you a Christmas card, you know, they thought about you, they texted you to see how you're doing. Boy, that receiving that love is a powerful thing. But you know what kind of love changes the world? It's not the love we receive. It's the love we give. It's when we take the time 
to go show up at somebody's door and sing a few Christmas carols for them. It's when we take the time to donate something of our own to help someone else. That's the kind of love that changes the world. And you know, even the lost secular world recognizes this on some basic level, which is why we see such an emphasis this time of year on being charitable and and giving and, and doing for other people. But listen, giving to meet others' needs should not be a seasonal activity. For Christians, it must be a way of life. We cannot say that we love God if we do not first show love to those around us who are in need. We who have been set free by the law of love must daily live to fulfill that law of love and how we treat and serve and love other people. Jesus even said that the way we love and serve others is a direct reflection of how we really love and serve Him. Right? Jesus said that whenever we care for the least among us, it's as if we are caring For Him. Once again, we find such significance in the priority of how love is mentioned in the Gospels. We've already seen that the first mention of love focuses on God's love for His Son and for His world. But then, what are the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth mentions of love in the Gospels? What are they talking about? Well, the next several uses of love in Matthew's Gospel is found in the Sermon on the Mount. And it specifically talks about how we are to love our enemies. It isn't until several chapters later that we see anything about loving God. And that's true of Mark and Luke and John as well. The emphasis is first on God's love for His Son and the world. And then the second emphasis is on our our love for others. Not God. Now, we would think that would be the other way. We would think, well, obviously the the most important next thing after God's love for us is our love for God. Why isn't it? Why does Jesus then focus on our love for other people? Well, we have to remember Jesus was speaking to a very religious culture, right? And most Jews probably felt that they loved God well. They were very observant. They they fulfilled their religious duties. They kept the feasts and the fasts, and they, they made the sacrifices. They gave the tithes and offerings. They went to synagogue and went to the temple, and they repeated the Shema every day. They observed the Sabbath. Just as it was for them, it's true for us. It's easy to convince ourselves that we're good Christians and we love God, isn't it? Who among us would say, yeah, I don't really love God? We would all say, yes, of course I love God. Of course I love Jesus. We go to church. We give our tithes and offerings. We read our Bible. We listen to Christian radio. We post Bible verses on Facebook. Obviously we love God easy to fool ourselves and those around us about whether we love God or not. You know what's harder to fool people about? Whether you love your enemies. Whether you love your neighbors. That's a whole lot harder to deceive people about. John makes it plain that we cannot say we love God whom we cannot see if we can't even love the people around us who we can see. Fulfilling the law of love, y'all, it's not about going through the motions. It's not about observing religious rituals. It's not about the occasional charitable act. It's about recognizing the image of God in others and seeing them through the eyes of Jesus as people that God loves so much. He sent His one and only Son, the Son whom He loves, to die in their place. We must love each other as fellow Christians because guess what? We share the same Father. 
We share the same Savior. We share the same Spirit. We're members of the same body. We must love one another. How can we love God if we don't love one another enough to bear each other's burdens and forgive each other's faults and meet each other's needs? How can we say we love God? How can we say we love God without loving the world, the people that He created in His image, the people He loved enough to die for their salvation? Do we even love them enough just to tell them about it? And that takes us back to the Nativity story in Luke chapter 2. The good news of great joy is for who? Look up there at uh, verse 10. The angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for who? For the Jews? For just these scraggly shepherds? For the rich? For the poor? Who does he say they're for? All people. Now this is what blew the minds of Jews in Jesus' day. This is what makes the gospel so radical. Again, we've talked about this before too. There are four main religious sects that were constantly at war with each other in Judaism at the time of Jesus. I mean, we think we have partisanship today. We think we've got political divisions today. Boy, it doesn't hold a candle to what the Jews were like in the first century. The first group you have are the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were looking for the Messiah who would be like the Old Testament prophets. They thought the Messiah was going to be like Jeremiah or Amos. He's going to bring strong words of judgment against the people. He's going to show up and start pointing out people's sin and driving them back to the law. And that's why the Pharisees in Jesus' day were so hard on tax collectors and prostitutes and other notorious sinners because the Pharisees believed that it was the mere presence of these people in the midst of Jewish life that was keeping the Messiah from coming. And if they could just get the people whipped into shape, then maybe the Messiah would show up. Because certainly the reason he has it, the reason we're still under Roman rule, is because of these sinners that are in our midst, polluting us. And while the Pharisees focused on the moral commands of the law, the Sadducees, their counterpart, focused on the ritualistic commands, especially those that dealt with the sacrificial systems and the temple and the priesthood. Salvation for them wasn't about keeping the rules, but observing the rituals. So rather than looking for this prophetic Messiah of the Pharisees, the Sadducees were looking for a priestly Messiah. They believed he would only come if they could purify temple worship. If they could get temple worship right back to the way God originally intended it to be, if they could keep these unclean Gentiles from interfering with the temple mount and the daily offerings and sacrifices, if they could keep Rome out of their religious affairs, then maybe the Messiah would come. So the Pharisees, they detested the Jews among them that were sinning. The Sadducees detested the Romans and the Gentiles who were hanging around. The Zealots kind of agreed with that a little bit. They believed the Messiah was waiting for them to stop being passive cowards and do something. They had this idea that God helps those who help themselves. And so if if Rome was the enemy, well, they needed to fight harder. And if they did, maybe then the Messiah would be stirred to come down and to destroy these pagans under whose boot they were gasping for breath. And the last group was the Essenes. Now, the Essenes were isolationists. They believed the only way to please God was to just leave the corrupt political and religious systems behind and create this alternative society out in the desert. They had a mentality that said the ship is sinking and it's every man for himself. And so they were willing to get on their own little lifeboat 
and save themselves and let everybody else go under. So with that in mind, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, can you see what a paradigm shift Jesus brought? He didn't come for the Jews only. He didn't come only for those who were ritually clean, spiritually elite, or religiously educated. He was the Messiah for the lawbreakers and the sinners. Jesus said it's not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. He came even for Gentiles, even for the Romans. Jesus came. It's good news of great joy for all people. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. That whosoever believes in Him. Those are radical words. And that blew the minds of the people in Jesus' day. You know what? It blows our minds too, doesn't it? If we were honest. So my question for us this morning, my challenge... Will you join me in taking seriously this command to fulfill the law of love? Don't just receive and enjoy the love that God lavishes upon you. Will you lavish it back upon Him? By worshiping regularly with God's people? By spending time daily with Him and His Word? By giving of your tithes and your offerings? But most importantly, this morning... Will you lavish His love on others by meeting the needs of the people around you, by being patient and enduring with one another and forgiving one another, bearing each other's burdens? Will you lavish His love on others by sharing the good news of God's grace? Let's fulfill the law by loving our neighbors and our enemies, by those who are like us and those who are different, by those who disagree with us and those who agree with us. We must love all people. And I pray that our church will shine the light of hope, peace, joy, and love into the lives of those who are far from God, that they might be saved. And listen, for you this morning, maybe that's you. Maybe you are far from God. Maybe you're the one this morning that needs to come to the realization that God so loved you that He gave His one and only Son to die on the cross so that you could believe in Him and be saved. Maybe this morning you need to come to know the subject of that good news, the Savior, the source of the joy, the great joy for all peoples, Jesus. If you don't know Him today, I beg you, come. Turn from your sins. Trust in the Savior. Receive the never-ending never breaking, never giving up, always and forever, love of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your love that was foreshadowed millennia ago as Abraham offered his one and only son whom he loved, Isaac. Jesus came, your one and only son, the son whom you love, to be offered up for us as the perfect spotless Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. Thank you. Thank you for the law that shows us that we are sinners, that we are guilty lawbreakers, that we can never do enough right things to make up for the wrongs that we have committed. That law that points us to Jesus, the one born under the law, to redeem those of us under the law, that we might be the sons and daughters of God. If there's anyone here today that has any doubt about where they stand in relation to you, I pray they would come right now and settle it 
that they would give their hearts and lives to You, Father. And I pray that You would impress upon all of our hearts a great burden and desire to fulfill that law of love in the way we treat one another and with the burden and passion that we have to share the good news with those who are far from You. Father, I pray that Your Spirit would lead Your people to respond according to Your will. In Jesus' name we pray.